So this was on paper what seemed to be one of Orban's toughest electoral challenge. And yet, and yet, it's quite staggering that he actually increased um, his, his share of votes. He actually got two extra seats. Undeniably, um, he is politically in tune with his country. I don't think you get 54% of the vote without some kind of understanding of what your country wants and what their de desires are. In numerous ways, Hungary and France could not be more different from one another. Hungary is a landlocked set of hills and plains in south-central Europe, flanked to the north and east by the Carpathian mountain range and to the west and south by the Drava River. It is a meager remnant of its former self, having lost two-thirds of its territory in the Trianon Treaty upon losing the First World War. France is a hexagon almost seven times the size, bathed by the Atlantic Ocean and the Mediterranean Sea. The contrast is even starker in demography than in geography. France is a rapidly aging and growingly childless society, its replacement of, of successive generations increasingly assured by vast waves of immigration, primarily from South and Eastern Europe in the interwar period, and then from former colonies in the Maghreb and Sub-Saharan Africa after World War II. Hungarian nationhood, meanwhile, has often dovetailed with descending from the Magyar tribes that first settled in, in the former Roman province of Pannonia nearly a millennia ago. But for all of their substantial differences, the elections held in these two countries over the past 10 days have imparted similar lessons about the challenge of incumbency, the appeal of populism, the impact of international events, and the temptation to shoehorn complex events into readily baked cliché narratives. In Hungary, Prime Minister Viktor Orban campaigned on his sound economic record and on keeping Hungary out of the Russo-Ukrainian war and was re-elected to serve a fourth consecutive term, his Fidesz party gaining a two-thirds supermajority in parliament. Emmanuel Macron, meanwhile, seemed similarly fated for re-election on April 24th after securing a larger gap between his share of the vote and Marine Le Pen's than in the last first round five years ago. This week, we sit down with a regular US-based co-host, Julian Graham, to unpack the takeaways from these two races. As always, please rate and review on Common Decency on Apple Podcasts and send us your comments or questions on Twitter at UndecencyPod or over email at UndecencyPod at gmail.com. And please, as always, consider supporting our show through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash UndecencyPod. Enjoy the show. So thank you so much for everyone to come for this special Hungarian-French election podcast. We are doing this from all over the world. Julian is joining us from Washington. Um, Jorge just narrowly managed to make it after watching the very thrilling um, uh, Champions League game between Chelsea and Real de Madrid. I think his heart is still pumping like crazy. And I'm in a stuffy hostel in Milan and trying to make sure the internet connection doesn't break. So this should be a great episode to all of you. Um, Julian, let's begin, let's begin with Hungary. Can, what happened, basically? Can you give us kind of a broad picture and then we'll progressively break it down as we go along? So the, good, good yeah. afternoon, good evening um, for everyone. Good morning if you're listening <laughs> to this in the morning where you are. In Hungary, um, the main takeaway is that Viktor Orban won his fourth mm -hmm. term as prime minister, um, his party Fidesz uh, obtained not just the majority, but the supermajority necessary to make amendments to the constitution, um, which the political opponents have alleged will lead him to erase what remains of Hungary's democracy in their, in their words, um, whereas Fidesz supporters say that this will enable them to continue the policies they've implemented during Mr. Orban's time in power and Fidesz's time in power um, as they continue to look to reshape the country. Um, there are many sort of major elements to this. The one that people are most aware of is probably Orban's feuding with the European Commission in Brussels over a number of policies that Hungary has implemented over the years, including restrictions on immigration, reforms to the judiciary, uh, curbs on media freedom, and um, policies affecting the rights of LGBT people. 
these are all areas where the European Commission and the Hungarian government disagree. And I think dropping today the news that the Commission would withhold some of the funding that was promised to Hungary because of these policies that the Commission does not support. Um, this has been a long-running thing for Orbán, and he's used it to generate support for his party and his government from rural voters, whereas the urban elite in Budapest um, mm. very much supported the opposition. In fact, the opposition parties won the biggest share of the vote in the capital, whereas where Fidesz dominated everywhere else in the country. And then just the final thing I'll say, um, in this election, the opposition had united in a bid to try and oust Fidesz from power and to oust Orban from power. They put aside their differences. They had a very convoluted primary process to put forward a unified candidate. And in the end, the result was a supermajority for Fidesz um, and cemented control for Orban and his political party. Yeah, and it's quite important because if you look at the past 16 years, Orban has been charged for 12 of these years. Um, he has been uh, under immense pressure over his handling of relations with the EU. He was confronted, as you said, by a united opposition, which was trying to be more efficient in its share of the vote across the country and not be kind of uh, beaten by a united Orban side. Um, so this was, on paper, what seemed to be one of Orban's toughest electoral challenge. And yet, and yet, it's quite staggering that he actually increased um, his, his share of votes. He actually got two extra seats. Um, it's, it's, he seems unsinkable. Um, now, whether that is down to um, some kind of gerrymandering or some kind of um, pressure on the opposition or his, his, his control of the media, there's different, different kind of angles you can use to say it wasn't completely free and fair. But undeniably, um, he is politically in tune with his country. I don't think you get 54% of the vote without some kind of understanding of what your country wants and what their de desires are. And in the aftermath of the election, you actually saw uh, members of the opposition crediting Fidesz and saying that they had misjudged the, yeah. the mood in the country, that they didn't fully understand the country, um, given the scale of the defeat that they had suffered. Um, you know, heading into this, people thought it would be a close election, um, but Orban uh, and Fidesz's dominance quite very much mm. shocked the opposition and many international observers. And you know, people can put this down to um, the media or the way the political map is drawn. But even Hungarian politicians in the opposition were expressing um, a belief that they had misjudged the mood in the country and they didn't fully understand the country. And so, on one level. Orban's success, um, although his critics will always say that it's will say that it's down to um, manipulation of the political system. At a very base level, he does have a fundamental understanding of Hungarian politics, of the Hungarian people, and that's mm. very much demonstrated in the scale yeah. of his victory, despite the fact that the opposition had pulled out all the stops to um, defeat him to, in this election. Yeah, yeah, just want to say, to be fair, on on, on the flip side of that. They also picked a candidate who probably wasn't up to the task, who did a lot of uh, blunders along the way and that probably weakened their case. Yeah, they probably yeah. shouldn't have done the yeah. Yeah, and, and just for the record, Peter Markisai, the opposition's uh, candidate in this race, lost in his own yeah. constituency. He failed to, beco to become an MP, essentially, um, and represent his... Um, his um, constituency, and I, th there, there's something else that that's kind of um, you know up in the air when whenever we're discussing this uh, latest Hungarian election. I'd love to get your uh, thoughts on this, but it seems like whenever um, you know the, the sort of the American and the British media narrative around this election has been that this has been a culture war election, and that Orbán has essentially secured a supermajority for the kind of ethno nationalism that uh, these same uh, media narratives have uh, portrayed him as defending. Right as uh, the, the idea, and in a way, this kind of reflects our own um, news cycle in the West, which we're sort of projecting out on, into Hungary. But, but the reality of the, the issues that Hungarian voters have actually voted on, I think, have been primarily the economy. Uh, Orban has uh, you know, put himself forth as the, uh, the, the, the best economic manager for the country. He has put himself forth as someone who has secured the goods and ensured that Hungary grows at a fast clip 
Um, and then the other issue that was rather unexpected was the Ukrainian war. Uh, uh, Orban has also put it, put his uh, Fidesz party forth as the party that is, that is going to yeah. keep Hungary out of the Rus uh, Russian-Ukrainian war. And I think that has also been heavily underestimated by Western uh, journalists. The idea that you know the majority of Hungarians actually don't want to be um, um, entangled in a sort of Eastern European quagmire with which they, I mean, obviously, I mean, the, the whole story, I mean, I, sh I should perhaps just mention that Hungary, hung uh, there's, there's an, uh, an ethnic minority of Hungarians in Ukraine, who um, Hungarian nationalists like Viktor Orban claim that uh, they're being uh, mistreated by the sort of the uh, uh, ethnic Ukrainian majority. So they have, so these Hungarians in Hungary have even less sympathy for someone like Zelensky than they, they, than they uh, would otherwise have. But I just wanted to highlight this very important point, which I think was absolutely key in swinging the election for Orban, which is that Orban was campaigning out as someone who was going to remain, who was going to, under whom uh, Hungar Hungary is going to remain uh, neutral. Yeah. Um, I, I want to go back to the um, rule of law breaches because the EU launched its process to slash Hungary's to slash Hungary's funds over the uh, alleged rule of law breaches. Um, so I looked a little into it, and obviously I'm no expert on this, and we probably will need to do a full episode on it. Um, I was actually quite struck when I was reading some of the accusations on the media landscape that were leveled on Orban, and um, I, I don't want to be too tongue in cheek about it, but it sometimes felt like he could have replaced the word Hungary with the word France. Um, essentially, it says mm. there's an issue in Hungary, which is the issue of media concentration, media ownership concentration, which is, again, exactly the same thing in France, um, by a class of oligarchs who are very close to the government. Now, oligarchs might may be too harsh a term, but there's a lot of tech... Um, millionaires of different different business figures, former Inach and whatever, who have essentially brought up all the media the past five or six years, um, maybe last decade, and half of them are pretty much openly backing uh, backing Macron. At least they did so in twenty seventeen. Um, so I mean, it's obviously, obviously I'm a little tongue in cheek about it because there's probably some differences here and there. Um, but it feels a lot. A lot of the accusations levelled against Orban are things that probably could be could be levelled against uh, Emmanuel Macron in France. So I think we have to be um, a little careful because I think in those situations of Hungary, it's often hard to sort the wheat from the barley, so to speak, because there's sometimes things which are generally concerning, and sometimes it, it's it sounds like some sour grapes. You're um, very annoyed that they can't win elections anymore. Because, and I'm also struck that they're doing this this procedure two days after the election. I mean, what kind of signal are you sending to, to Hungarians? You know, we, we are punishing you for voting for the wrong candidates. Um, I, I understand you probably would have wanted to open that uh, procedure three days before the election. That probably would have been a lot, more, lot worse. But two days after, it kind of feels like Screw you guys, you voted for the wrong guy, you're going to be punished. Now, it, maybe it's just a question of optics, but the optics matter here. The optics matter a lot because it, 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 makes, it makes Hungarians feel like they're probably some kind of second-rate European citizens. Yeah, and whenever we're uh, dis discussing these, um, uh, rule, uh, these uh, um, uh, kind of um, uh, proceedings against uh, Hungary, but also Poland, both of, both of which have been under... Um, under severe scrutiny by the European Commission, the, the, the key difference here to highlight is that uh, whereas in Poland there is a very clear case for, I mean, the, the, the reason for, uh, for um, uh, the, the Commission's uh, proceedings, proceedings against Poland is a lot clearer. Uh, Poland has reformed the way that constitutional court judges are uh, nominated, and that reform has... Uh, you know, in the in 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 the minds of uh, the opposition in Poland and 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 bureaucrats in Brussels, that reform has jeopardized rule of law in Poland. That is the the policy that is under uh, scrutiny in Poland's case. In Hungary, there's a there's a, a a wide spectrum of policies that are that are the cause for this. 
there's the uh, me- there's the state of the media sector, there's the uh, rules governing uh, NGOs and and to what extent NGOs can help in uh, asylum. There's also the fact that uh, there's been some uh, allegedly some gerrymandering of the uh, electoral districts in Hungary. Fidesz has been playing with the boundaries of those yeah. districts allegedly to sort of. Uh, spread spread the votes uh, uh, out into as many uh, constituencies L- as possible. LGBT LGBT So there, it's a very um, uh, dispersed case. There there are many policies uh, currently being implemented in, in Hungary that uh, have warranted this uh, the, these proceedings by the European Commission and the, the the eventual pairing back of funds. Yeah, I completely completely agree. Um, just. Um... Hungary is um, there's been a sort of growth and you've you've had guests on who've talked about this in the past in your episode on Hungary's election how Orban and his model of conservatism is sometimes held up as an example for other sort of nationalist conservatives or um, you know I'm trying to find like the right words because they 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 use so many different ways to describe themselves but I mean in Orban's um, exact words he described it as christian democratic conservative patriotic politics um that model which you know some conservatives in the uk other conservatives across europe um obviously we will get on to france but also here in the united states and the republican party they will probably sort of look at this campaign and see a validation of some of the uh broad-based criticisms and policy ideas and sort of political ideas that Orban champions the the, the the attacks on the elites the idea of a sort of um an enemy who's mm. suppressing that national heritage and that cultural pride i think this election although you know hungary in terms of its global influence it doesn't quite compare to some of the other countries where we have these nationalist conservative movements i do think that on an intellectual level uh, we will see some after effects of this um, potentially in the way that certain campaigns around the world are run by other conservatives. And I am thinking a little bit about the US where Orban is held up as a model by some members yep. of the Republican Party. Absolutely. Mm. Um, let, let's pivot to the more recent election. Um, we've been covering the probably two of the most important elections in, in Europe uh, over the past few months, the Hungarian election and the fr- French election. Obviously, the French election is a bit closer to um, to my heart, I guess, because I'm, I'm French and Jorge lives in Paris. Um, so we've done a lot, uh, many episodes on the French election, uh, including a few episodes on Eric Zemmour. And uh, there was a lot of interest for Eric Zemmour. Well, I'm happy or unhappy, depending on who you ask, to report that he has only managed to get 7% of the vote. The big winners of the elections of the election were, after all, unsurprisingly, we went back to the status quo, which we thought would have been potentially upset during the election, Macron is in first position, and Le Pen is in second position, and Jean-Luc Mélenchon once again does an incredible last-minute surge, but falls short only a few hundred thousand votes away. And then you get Pécresse and Zemmour, the two centre-right and right-wing candidates, um, very much far behind at um, 7% and 4.7%. and then you go down in like the low single digits with the Greens at 3%, the Communists at 3%, that's a good result for them. Um, the Socialists are 2%, which is again a disastrous result for them, the worst result in their history. Um, so there's a lot going on, there's a lot of um, takes on the election, but the main take is after five years of tumultuous French politics, we end up pretty much exactly in the same situation as 2017, with Macron a bit stronger, Le Pen a bit stronger, despite all the tension she's been under. Um, so yeah, it's a bit of um, a bit of a surprise here, actually. The, the surprise is that there wasn't a surprise in the end. Yeah, it's it's strange that we spent so much time um, talking about, you know what the Zemmour candidacy could do for yeah. the French right, that, you know, the dominance of the French right um, in French politics and sort of the shift yeah. in the sands of Macron's policy as he tries to court those voters. Um, and in the end, we're sort of back where we were yeah. five years ago. 
um, albeit with a stronger showing from Mélenchon, um, who almost managed to get the snowball effect that I think uh, you and Jorge yeah. had spoken of, of getting the parties on the left to sort of rally behind him just to try yeah. to sneak into that second round. But really, you know, I guess the more things change, the yeah. more they stay the same. And I, I want to talk about that because it's important. I think both on the right and on the left, you saw a very fluid situation in the past week. Because, again, in the first round, you choose. In the second round, you eliminate in France. However, you can also kind of finesse it tactically. Because you may want to go for your preferred candidate on the left, on the right. But if that means your second alternative won't make it to the runoff, and you'll be forced to choose between um, the candidate you hate the most and the one you, uh, you, you detest, but not quite as much as the other one, um, that's not a good situation. And that's exactly what happened. People on the centre-left who really don't like Mélenchon for different reasons kind of said, OK, I, I, I could probably live with Mélenchon as president, and I probably would be happy to have some kind of left-wing vote, vote in a runoff. And so you saw uh, voters from the Greens, voters from the Socialists, fleeing away from, from, their, from their first choice to back Mélenchon. And on the right, I think we saw a similar phenomenon where a lot of people were saying, we have been so dominant in the past five years in the discourse, in, in politics, we could not allow this election to be taken away from us in an unexpected runoff between Macron and Mélenchon. And so, especially among Zemmour voters, you got a lot of tactical voting where people said, I can't risk seeing a Mélenchon against Macron um, runoff. Now, just one word on Mélenchon. Um, obviously, uh, we talked about how there's a snowballing of tactical votes. I also think there's a bit more than that, because if you look at the total tally of the left in this election, in this first round, it's a lot higher than the total predicted for the left only two months ago. He has managed to mobilise voters outside of the traditional left-wing party bases. My understanding is he has managed to do extraordinary scores, especially in the banlieue, among the French youth, in, in electorates that tended to vote a, yeah. uh, in kind of smaller numbers. And one thing he has managed to do, which has been a deliberate strategy over the past, past three or five years, has been to rekindle with the Muslim vote. Because the Muslim vote used to be a strong bulwark of left-wing support over the past 40 years. But they broke with the Socialist Party, um, not just because you know, of their reaction to the terrorist attacks in 2015, where they, they kind of, some might have considered the response to be Islamophobic, where the uh, François Hollande wanting to uh, remove the citizenship of dual citizens, for those suspected of terrorist acts and so on and so on. They, they, this context may have played a part, but I think more importantly, what played a part even before that was gay marriage. François Hollande passing gay marriage and also mm. trying to um, um, you know, liberalise education on homosexuality, uh, on gender theory and, and, and so on. And both of these were reported to have massive effects among uh, left-wing Muslim voters who felt they couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't vote for, for these people. And Mélenchon has managed to rekindle that, that flame. Mm. He had 69% of the Muslim yeah. votes in this election. 69%, that is huge. Um, uh, and, and more generally, I think, actually, it's interesting to see there's been a, how can I say this, a polarization of religious folks. I think Catholics have been increasingly voting for right-wing to far-right candidates, but we're still somewhat within the kind of uh, what you'd expect. It's only like 40% who have voted for far-right parties, which is not so far from, from the general population, which voted at 35% for right-wing to far-right far right, um, candidates. But the Jews, it's hard to actually measure how, um, where the Jews voted, um, for which candidates they voted. But I know in Israel, for example, Zimbabwe nearly gets 50%. Now, obviously not all people living in Israel voting yeah. in French election are Jewish, but it's, it's a pretty good proxy here. Um, yeah, it's an it interesting is. situation. Yeah. Very interesting situation. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I think, I mean, uh, the uh, Zemmour's uh, success with the Jewish vote, which I think perhaps needs to be uh, br broken down a little bit. I, th I mean, Zemmour was from the get-go um, the boogeyman of the established uh, Jewish uh, kind mm. of legacy institutions like Le Crif, 
and others, uh, these, these established legacy Jewish institutions had um, called for Jews not to vote for any uh, ex- ex- what they called extremist candidates, but particularly not, not to fall for Zemmour's um, bid to win the Jewish vote. And, and yet Zemmour did, I think, surprisingly well with French Jews. Obviously, we don't know quite uh, just just how well. I mean, uh, the data is not broken down by ethnic, by ethnicity or by, by uh, religious uh, uh, faith. But what we do know, as you said, is that the, um, the community of French Jews who have made the Aliyah to Israel, so French Jews voting in, in, from Israel, uh, that, that tends to be a good proxy of where the Jewish vote is. And I think Zemmour uh, won like 50% of, of the vote there, or maybe even a, a little bit higher. So, so uh, Zemmour, uh, and, and I think if you, if the, there, was, uh, there was a specific case that I was looking into as well uh, in the city of Sarcelles, which I think is in the uh, Val d'Oise, so north of Paris, uh, Sarcelles uh, was, uh, used, to be, used to have a vibrant kind of working class Jewish community. And in the precincts where those Jews lived, Zemmour has also won. Uh, and was far ahead of Mélenchon, who in uh, elsewhere in the Val d'Oise, uh, just like everywhere, kind of in the sort of beltway around Paris, has has been uh, has been very successful. But so so Zemmour did did very well with the Jews, and I think it has to do with um, um, this whole message about you know we're 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 trying to avoid the sort of great replacement, and uh, we're trying to halt uh, mass migration, which is a threat to not just the Jews, but a threat to in Zemmour's uh, thinking to France at large. Um, as long-time listeners of a show will know, um, Jorge is fascinating with all things Jewish. Um, he's, also, he's also single. <laughs> so if you're a single woman um, uh, of Jewish confession, Jorge would love to meet you. Um, uh, jokes aside, jokes aside. <laughs> um, one thing that's going to be interesting, actually, is these, must, uh, sorry, Jewish voters who voted for, for Zemmour, um, they would not have voted for Le Pen because she's called Le Pen, because of the history of her party. What's going to be interesting now is Zemmour called to vote for Le Pen. He backed Le Pen for the runoff. He's the only candidate I think who's done, done so, so far. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see if that breaks a dam somewhat um, for the Le Pen vote in the, in the Jewish community. Um, just another thing I want to add, um, you can have polls that will give you um, data on uh, on confessional data. It just cannot be public data. Um, so so um, mm. there's a distinction mm. here. But usually they don't give data on the Jewish vote because it might not be big enough to be representative. Uh, maybe something along those lines. But I, I know it's notoriously hard to mm. understand who, who the Jews vote for. Julian, do you want to say mm. something before you have to head out? Yeah, I mean, I just th- I think the the only thing I, I'd mention is now that we're heading back to a sort of rerun of Macron versus Le Pen, um, looking at the breakdown of the votes in the first round, regardless of who actually wins in the second round, um, and let's, let's just assume for argument's sake that Macron does win in the second round, he's looking at a country, governing a country where in the first round you could say for... 52% of the electorate voted for non-mainstream yeah. candidates mm. uh, or non-established party candidates, uh, by which I mean, you know, some people will say the far right or the far left, but let's just say non, non-mainstream candidates yeah. just to make it a bit easier. Mm. And attempting to govern, and some of the ambitious proposals, one of which he's already sort of walked back on, um, namely on the increase, increasing of the retirement age, you know, election, winning an election is one thing, yeah. governing is another. And whether it's Macron or whether it's Le Pen, France is going to face a difficult five years if whoever is the prevailing candidate is unable to effectively govern because of widespread dissatisfaction, because either a plurality or even a majority of the electorate doesn't actually approve of their candidacy. Um, I think that's a, a sort of macro level trend that is worth watching over the next couple of weeks is, you know, regardless of who wins, but what will be the approval of that person upon mm. taking office? Macron's approval right now is sort of 44%, depending on which sort of poll you look, look at. Um, that's going to be a big struggle for the next president, um, but also for France and indeed for Europe moving forward at such a difficult time. For the
Yeah, I want to bounce back on what Julian just said. Um, there's been a kind of hip theory that we were heading towards peak populism very soon. Um, we've been hearing this, uh, this kind of argument since, I don't know, basically 2017, and it's refreshed every year. Um, obviously, Zemmour failed electorally big time. Um, and Le Pen is still far behind uh, Macron. But the share of far right keeps increasing mm. year after year. Mm. Um, she is getting more, she's getting millions of votes and she's probably going to get, she's, she's going to get 40 plus for sure. Mm. So she's going to be a lot higher than she was in 2017. And which some polls, which was already the highest record of the um, Front National back then. Mm. But um, now she could make it as close as 49%. I mean, uh, I was talking to a friend who was at a Macron rally. And he was telling me, obviously, they were, they were pretty happy and the results were quite good for Macron. They were a lot higher than w what they thought it would be. Yeah. Um, but they also kind of, it kind of dawned on them that they, they could come down in history as the people who screwed it, as the people who fucked up so much that the far right took power in France. Yeah. And I remember something Macron said in 2017, saying, um, I think, think French, French citizens should judge me on, on um, how strong the Front National will be in five years' time. Mm. Mm. And obviously, I don't think that's the way we should judge Macron's presidency. I think it's a stupid criteria. But if he is going to use that criteria, that's not a good look. That's really not a good look. And one illustration where a lot of people, a lot of Mélenchon voters, are willing to abstain. Some of them actually will vote for, for, Milan, for Le Pen, despite Mélenchon yes. saying many times during his post-defeat rally that not a single vote should go to Le Pen. A lot of people just so yeah. fed up with Macron, they're willing to vote for, for Le Pen. Um, I don't know. I, I, yeah. Yeah. If I can just interject, this is you, you've just touched upon the uh, what I think is going to be one of the most interesting uh, trends to watch out for in the runoff, which is the Mélenchon to Le Pen vote. Who, if you know, as you said, as you very rightly pointed out, Mélenchon has massively grown his uh, vote, share of the the general vote. Uh, he has come come in third at. Uh, what, what was it? Uh, like uh, uh, almost uh, yeah. uh, like thirty percent. Um, and you know, and the interesting thing is, um, I, I, I mean, a lot of the people who are who have been voting for Marine Le Pen repeatedly over the past few elections in sort of the northern regions of the country were, in turn, older communist voters who had transitioned to the far right, um, but they still appreciated the kind of the the uh, welfare state element to uh, the Rassemblement National's uh, agenda, the fact that it was a very kind of social party, right? The fact that it was all for reindustrializing the country, the fact that it was for bringing jobs back. Um, and and I, I, I happen to be very interested in this, this, uh, this uh, transfusion of votes from the, from the radical left to the radical right. And that has been going on in, in France for, for, for many years. So I don't think it's a, it's a stretch to imagine that many of the people, or at least a substantial share of the people who voted for Mélenchon in the post round will be voting for Le Pen in the runoff. It, it makes coherent sense. I mean, it, it, um, at the end of the day, I mean, the, the extremes kind of, what's the, what's the saying? The extremes touch one another. Converge. Um, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, a few, a few comments. I think there's a lot in flux right now and it seems to me like Le Pen is doing the better runoff campaign at the moment we are recording this, she quite astutely is attacking, I think, one of Macron's um, soft spots, which is his promise to reform the institutions. Um, mm. I think we talked plenty of times, you know, many times on this podcast on Macron's very Jupiterian um, governance, which is very much in the spirit of the Fifth Republic. Mm. But at the same time, let, let us not forget, he was very much elected in a kind of you know, new way of doing democracy in 2017, we need to be more horizontal in our approach to politics. Um, I think that was part of the appeal of Macron, you know, saying we are going to trans transform the institutions which are a bit old and each freshening up. It's actually quite shocked to see that Le Pen in the past few days has attacked him on that angle. 
saying mm. this, it's not normal, for example, that the National Assembly is not representative of the electoral body at the moment. And so she's mm. arguing for some kind of proportional vote, which would be tempered by some kind of um, boost to the um, uh, biggest party, which obviously would favour her because she probably would not be able to win a normal legislative, legislative election. But a proportional election with a boost to whoever's in first position is obviously uh, amazing for, for someone that's in that. But again, you know, trans transforming institutions. She said we need more referendums. Uh, the Gilets Jaunes were big on the popular initiated referendum, where if you reach a certain threshold of um, signatures, there would be a automatic referendum. Again, Macron has done nothing on that. He's promised many referendums over the past uh, past few years, and in the end has gone, gone through with none of them. Um, I think she's been quite astute because it's one angle which can unite a lot of the former Gilets Jaunes, which speaks to the left, um, while not being something people on the right will be horrified by. Um, it's, I don't know, so far, a bit like in 2017, where I thought Le Pen had the better start of the, uh, for the run of campaign. I think once again, she got the edge. Let's not forget that then in the 2017 campaign, she completely collapsed in the debate against Macron. And that probably sank any of her hopes um, and neither cost her yeah. political career. Um, yeah. Yeah. And how, um, so obviously one of the, one of the, um, um, the things that where one of the unsurprising uh, aspects of this, this runoff campaign is that uh, Le Pen has, uh, has pitched herself as the sort of the anti-Macron uh, option, right? Uh, yeah. She wants to rally as many, elements of the electorate as possible in this sort of bid to oust uh, Macron. And um, do you think, Francois, how, how successful do you think she will be with center-right voters who, who uh, went for Pécresse in the, in the runoff, obviously, in the, in the first round? Obviously, Pécresse has called for her voters to go for Macron, but do you think that uh, enough of them will be tempted to vote for Le Pen to, to kind of change the outcome from what we saw in 2017? I... So I think Macron's angle is quite simple. It's going to be Russia, Russia, Russia. Um, and it's a, mm. it's a very powerful angle. Um, if it weren't for Russia, actually, I'd be quite worried for, for, for Macron because um, I think there's some good things that came out of his pres presidency. Um, you know, I think the employment market is probably looking a lot better than it was five years ago, despite COVID. Um, but there is kind of lingering sense um, that... Macron has promised everything to everyone and promised different things simultaneously. There's, there's a meme that circulates uh, about all Macron's pledges and all his, all his quotes, uh, which I think is quite funny um, on that matter. But um, it, it's the advantage of promising a lot of things to different people is that you know it, it works at least once. But then at some point, it creates a sense, sense that you're not exactly sure who you're voting for. And I think that's something that the French electorate has grown to, I don't know, to resent. Macron is the only president of the Fifth Republic who was younger than the median citizen in France. Mm. All of them were older. And they also had longer political careers. People kind of knew them. With Macron, there's a sense they were seeing him build himself politically while he was president of the Republic. Um, a lot of people joked he was doing his inner, uh, the uh, finishing school for civil service. He was doing his inner internship at the Elysee. That's obviously a bit of a harsh joke, mm. but to some extent, he felt like he was building himself politically. And for example, take the issues of Islamic separatism, which ended up, ended up being so important in the second half of his term. Um, he, had, he didn't have much of a backbone in this. He, 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 he actually, if anything, he looked a lot more like a Tony Blair in 2017 on this kind of issues. Um, trying to rub the nose of a, of a right on the question of immigration. Um, so I don't know, if it wasn't for Russia, I'd actually be a bit, a bit concerned because it's going to be really easy for, for, for Le Pen to kind of take different bits of, it, of, his, of his term and, you know, give, give, throw a few bones to the far, far left, throw, throw a, few bones, a few bones to the right um, and play defensively. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And obviously, uh, I think I think it was Le Monde was um, was reporting on uh, uh, yesterday was reporting on Macron's pitch to the left. He's also been 
I think one of the things he has done since the the the, the first round is he has, or, or maybe this was in the days leading up to the first round, but um, he is now proposing to uh, um, uh, put his uh, proposed reform to the uh, retirement system to a vote, uh, to a referendum. And so he's trying to sort of, he's trying to build this sort of uh, almost real socialist kind of angle to his message uh, so that uh, in the hope of tapping into into uh, uh, Anne Hidalgo's and Jean-Luc Mélenchon's vote um, from, from the first round. And um, no, I think it'll be, it'll be, it'll be an interest. It will be an, an interesting run up. I think uh, you're certainly going to have uh, many of the same kind of lines of attack um, raining down on Marine Le Pen. I mean, uh, Macron and everyone who is going to be backing him is essentially going to be portraying Marine Le Pen as someone who will lead us to Frexit. Someone who, even though she is not pledging to get us out of the European Union, the, the result of her policies will be that eventually France will have to leave or, or else the EU will just be, uh, will just kind of crumble. Um, so I think, I think, I think to that extent, we're, we're, we are seeing a redux of 2017. To that extent, we are very much seeing a, a, um, a, a you know, a redo of uh, the election five years ago. But as you said, I think the, the Russia angle is going gonna, is gonna to be very relevant too. Two, two things to, to probably wrap this up. One is the presidential election is going to be followed up by the um, legislative election. Mm. We're going to be electing our new Assemblée Nationale, our new, our new um, um, lower house. Um, it's obviously very hard to predict. But if we are using the um, data from the first round of the current presidential election, it would translate in 256 La République En Marche MPs, 206 uh, Rassemblement, Rassemblement National MPs, and 104 La France Insoumise MPs. Now, obviously, uh, there's so many factors going on here that's going to that's going to screw up the scenario. Obviously, there's going to be the incumbent factor. There's going to be different alliances. Um, there's obviously going to be more than just three parties in Parliament. So this is obviously a gross overgeneralization. But it also means that the situation is quite open, actually, for the legislative election. Now, that said, and I'm touching a little bit about it here, but um, I should have an article published on Thursday um, mm. with Unheard on, on this question. Um, the French are Republican monarchs, essentially. Sorry, we live in a Republican monarchy where we decide every five years to elect a king. We usually decide to decapitate him five years later. Um, but we are definitely very monarchist in our approach to institutions. The president of France is hugely powerful. Um, once the presidential ship has sailed, it is very hard for the oppositions to actually steer public policy. Um, what that means is the only election that matters in France, if we are being serious, is the presidential election. The legislative election could matter because if he doesn't have a majority, the president can't do much. But what has always happened is when the legislative election just follows a presidential election, the French electorate always gives the new president, the incoming president, a majority that is more than enough to play with. Um, because, you know, they feel it, it wouldn't make sense to elect a president and then not to give him a majority in parliament. So, again, in 2017, people said Macron, even if he wins a presidential election, he has no chance of getting a parliamentary majority. In the end, he had one of the largest parliamentary majority in the history of the Fifth Republic. Um, the joke was you could have slapped a Macron sl um, sticker on the face of a goat, and he probably would have been elected in some in some uh, some areas of France, given <laughs> the kind of overwhelming uh, success he had in this legislative election. The opposition were deflated; they lost hope, uh, and people wanted to give Macron a mandate to to govern. Um, but what it also means is. I think this election was quite lackluster. Uh, it actually, at times, didn't feel like there was an election. I was actually walking around in Paris on Sunday night, and there wasn't much that would bring me back to the idea we just went through the most important democratic moment in the French Republic. Um, not much. And obviously, there was COVID, there was, there was Russia and Ukraine, which kind of took our attention away from it. But also, I think the campaign was quite poor. Macron basically refused to campaign. Uh, he only started campaigning 10 days before the election, 
which I, I just staggers me. Um, and it's an issue because it, it means the French electorate is going to be choosing on not much to base their opinion on. But I think it's a larger issue because it's, it's supposed to be a cathartic moment. If you only have an important democratic moment every five years, and some people may, might argue that's an issue, um, but if you only have it every, every five years, it means it needs to be an important moment. It needs to be a moment where all the issues are on the table, where there's a proper democratic catharsis. Yeah. And I already thought in 2017 the election was quite poor because we talked about all the scandals from François Fillon and ended up actually talking very little about uh, Islamic separatism, which probably should have been an issue given the terrorist attacks over the past five years. Um, but we barely talked about it. And obviously that ended up being one of the most important issues Macron had to deal with. We talked about the environment, but in general terms. We didn't talk about the details of how we would pay for that kind of transition. And in the end, um, we got the Gilets Jaunes, which I think was also somewhat the consequences of a lack of democratic catharsis in 2017. Uh, I'll go more in detail in the article if you're interested, which should be released um, tomorrow for all of you. Um, but I'm actually quite worried. I'm actually quite worried that this, this election did not deliver what it should have delivered. And whoever's elected the next president um, is probably going to have to pay for the lack of a proper democratic encounter we, in 2022. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and, and uh, let's remind folks, obviously, that, you know, um, one of the, uh, I mean, uh, one, of, one of the things we learned uh, as the uh, result uh, from the first round was being counted is that uh, Zemmour, even though, uh, I mean, despite his poor showing, he is going to be running in the legislative election uh, yeah. under the Reconquête ticket. So yeah. this is going to be an even more fractured political landscape than it was in 2017. And the chances, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I, I take your point that the, uh, the, the tendency uh, has been for the French electorate to appoint a powerful monarch. And in this case, this will point towards um, the French electorate uh, uh, voting uh, uh, voting a uh, big majority of uh, La République En Marche uh, MPs in uh, into the new um, uh, National Assembly, but uh, but there is going to be a very large, uh, uh, admittedly an even larger um, um, delegation of, of Rassemblement National MPs, and um, and and obviously the new Reconquête MPs. I mean, I I, I don't think that. Um, Zemmour is done with uh, with with French politics at all. I mean, we're gonna see, we're gonna keep hearing about it. I think he's um, one, one of the things he's trying to do to to kind of um, um, uh, to kind of uh, spin his uh, defeat is to say that look, I have been defeated because the people weren't ready for me, and uh, I have been able to um, set the agenda for this uh, electoral race. A lot of the issues that all candidates have been have have had to weigh in on. I was the first one to bring them up. This has kind of been uh, this has kind of been Zemmour's uh, uh, pitch uh, since since losing badly in, in the first round. <laughs> um, on that, I think um, Zimbo's campaign is obviously an electoral failure, but there's probably much to be said on how he kind of smashed the Overton window. The, mm. um, now, obviously, you know if you're being very um, how could I say. Um, serious about the concept of Overton window, you, you have to say politicians technically can't open the Overton window. It can only be kind of intellectuals outside of a physical sphere. But undeniably, he's in more in the kind of hybrid intellectual politician role he's had over the past few months, um, has smashed the Overton window. I mean, the fact that concepts like the Great Replacement and the concept of remigration, which, to be honest, were far-right memes a year ago, are now kind of polling over 60%. It's just, I don't know, just mind-boggling. Um, um, another question is going to be, obviously, the landscape post-election, because I was talking to a few people in the kind of um, Zemmour, Le Pen um, battle, battle sphere, I guess, and the Zemmour people were very worried. They're worried they're going to, they're going to be completely vampirized by, by Le Pen. Mm. And Le Pen is, is really is going to punish him hard because a lot of them are former former Rassemblement National people who betrayed her. Um, Zemmour thought he would have been able to recreate a kind of large tent right-wing party. It's hard to imagine that now, mm. given um, his failure. It's, it's, 
and, and it remains to be seen what his place will be in the future. He still wants to be in politics. He probably can't go back to media now. Um, it's hard to go to to go back after you've done that transition. But yeah, it's going to be interesting. Um, interesting thread to follow the past past few months, I guess. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Again, thanks a lot, Julian. Thanks a lot, Jorge. Thanks a lot for tuning in. Um, Thank you. Two things before we leave. First of all, we are very much saddened to hear that um, Jesse Morton has passed away. Um, Jesse Morton was one of our guests for our episode 24 with Hugo Michon. It's actually, it's actually Hugo who's texted us today saying um, that fortunately Jesse passed away uh, a, few, a few weeks ago. Um, we're very much saddened by, by, his, by this loss. I really recommend all of you to listen to his to our episode with him because he has an incredible life story. He started as you know a, a poor redneck in in America, and um, ended up joining a Islamist cell and being a recruiter for Al Qaeda, and then having a um, road to Damascus moment, I guess, and uh, ever since has been trying to fight against um, uh, is, is, is Islamic terrorism. Um, and unfortunately he passed away so obviously very sad to hear that um, really recommend it, it is a fascinating episode and I think that's probably the best thing you can do to um, pay homage to him at the moment um, yeah so and on that note if you want to support the show if you've liked this episode and if you liked our other episodes um, we would love to see you on our Patreon Patreon allows us to do some great things again um, we are exploring with the concept of a Common Decency Book Club, but we need to sense some, um, how can I say this, some appetite for it. Um, otherwise, it's going to be a lot of extra work for us without um, much need for. And uh, we are doing this on our spare time. We are not being paid for this. So you know, we, there's only so much time we can spend to on this podcast. So, so anyways, <clears throat> we very much appreciate your support on Patreon. If you can't afford the Patreon, Please, 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 um, you can do us a world of good by rating the show on Apple Podcasts or subscribing on Spotify, for example, or even more, you know, a simple share to your friend and would do all of us a load of good. So, yeah. Thanks, Jorge. Thanks, Julian. And to all of you, I'll see you next week. Thank you, Francois.